0: Uh, so uh, once again, Philippians 2, starting in verse 19, uh, if and when you get there, if you are able this morning, can you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Hear the word of the Lord. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ.
1: Morning, guys, gals. Glad that you're here. My name is Court. I'm one of the pastors of the church. I want to welcome you here. If it's your first time, uh, usually we have two gatherings. This morning we're only having uh, one, and that's because uh, we we have a lot of a lot more. Uh, the ratio of guys to gals is different this morning. Uh, A lot of our gals have been at a retreat all weekend, and so they are are not here, and therefore we decided to have one gathering because we can't do things that we normally do without women in the world, okay? Like most most of the time we screw stuff up, so we just tried to consolidate. When guys are left to themselves, we can ruin some things, all right? So we decided to consolidate, have one gathering, but we're glad that you are here Uh, If it's your first time, I want to say thank you for making us a part of your week And uh, hopefully you'll you'll get a connect card fill that out. Let us know who you are. We'd love to get to know you Um, Like eric said, we've been in a sermon series entitled unwavering joy We've been walking through the book of philippians and talking about uh, the role of joy in the christian life or how God uh, has given us the great and glorious gospel to bring joy into our lives and what joy uh, looks like. And so this morning, I have the task of walking through Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 30, and we're going to be talking about joy in the context of relationships. Joy in the context of relationships. Um, and, and when I say relationships, I don't particularly mean uh, marital relationships, although I think that most of what I'm gonna talk about this morning can apply. Uh, but really just all interpersonal relationships in and of themselves. Um, There are a few things that will affect us in life more than our relationships to other people. From the moment we're born, we are being shaped, we're being molded, uh, formed by the people around us. Think about it. Uh, When you were born, your mom is caring for you, feeding you. Dads are changing your diapers, trying not to screw it up, planning out your sports career. your grandma, your grandpa, they're, they're doting on you, spoiling you because you're not, you're, you're not their primary responsibility and they just love that. They just get to do whatever they want and then whenever things get hairy, they go, okay, see you guys later. Um, your brothers and sisters are picking on you. Uh, when we get old enough for school, friends come into the picture. Now we have these new relationships that aren't just familial. We laugh with friends, share with friends, poke fun at friends, fight with our friends. Uh, relationships go through that junior high and high school phase. That's weird, you know. Uh, if you're a parent of a junior high or high schooler, all right, I'm not gonna even continue because they might be sitting next to you, but uh, they go through that phase. We go to college, we build new friendships. Um, even, even relationships like romantic ones uh, are forming, dating, engagement, maybe even marriage. They all take the form of relationship. And, and basically for the rest of our lives, we're surrounded by this, right? Your, your workplace relationships, uh, your, your neighbors come into play. And, and, and these relationships affect us Few things give us more joy than our relationships, but the other side of that is few things can rob us of joy more easily than if our relationships go awry. And the reason for this is because, first and foremost, God made us to be in relationship to one another. So one of the very first things that God says upon the creation of man is that it's not good for man to be alone, right? Alone. And God had already said that everything about creation was good and then very good except the fact that man was alone. And so the reason that God creates Eve to be in relationship with Adam and then that that relational aspect of our humanity would continue on from there is because it reflects the image of God, that God, Father, Son, and Spirit, the Trinity, God within himself is, is living and existing in relationship eternally. And we reflect God in that way. Now, if you continue reading on in the story, you know that because of sin, our relationships are broken. Because of sin, shame, guilt, fear, mistrust, distrust, uh, all of those things have marred the way in which we relate to each other. So what I can guess, without knowing you, many of you I do know, some of you I don't, without knowing you, I can guess that walking in here and being seated, you probably have some relationships that you feel are are just doing well, but if I had to guess, most of us, if not all of us, have that one relationship or a few or a handful or many that just aren't going so well. Um, We put them out of our minds sometimes, or or what we say on Facebook or to others is that we've put them out of our life, but they never really go out of your life, do they? Especially if they're family, we're coming up to November, so you know what's going to happen? You're going to get on Thanksgiving dinner, and there's going to be a big table, and you guys are going to get around, and those people that you've been ignoring for 11 months, they'll be there, and their kids, which are like miniature versions of them, you know? And so at the end of the day, these, all these relationships that we have, whether we try to compartmentalize them or not, I can guess that probably because of sin and because of brokenness, you might have tension in some relationship. For some of you, maybe it'd be marital. If you're not going through marital difficulties or tension right now, I can almost promise you you either will or have, right? Uh, because of the very nature of two human beings, two sinners that are trying to make one life together, that's a train wreck waiting to happen apart from the Spirit of God. Paul takes time to address the Philippian church about sending to them two people, Timothy and Epaphroditus. And in doing so, he mentions this set of relationships and starts to give us insight into the joyful nature that relationships in Christ can and should offer us. Paul talks about his love and care for the Philippians. There's a relationship there. Paul then talks about his relationship to Timothy. He says, like a father to a son, He talks about Timothy's relationship to the Philippians, this genuine concern for their welfare. He talks about his relationship to Epaphroditus, that he would have sorrow upon sorrow if the sickness that Epaphroditus had experienced had eventually led to death. He talks about the Philippian church's relationship to Epaphroditus and how Epaphroditus cared so much for them that he didn't just get sent by Paul to go and see them, but he himself longed to see them. See, Paul gives us great insight, not just into his set of relationships, but into the characteristics and virtues that all Christian relationships should carry and the joy that can result from them if they're rooted and committed to the gospel of Jesus. Now, here's what we know, right? Is that um, even though we know that relationships can bring that kind of joy, that at times they don't. And that's hard, right? Why aren't they? Why are my friendships not just welling up into wellsprings of joy? And instead, they, they breed a lot of contention. They breed a lot of arguments. They breed a lot of uh, passive-aggressive feelings. Well, the Bible doesn't, isn't silent upon that. It says, listen, uh, the fall of man has created such a brokenness in our relationships that we're going to be battling against this every single day. But also, the Bible doesn't leave us hopeless. It doesn't leave us to say that it's going to always be this way, but it it leads us to, to, to know and to love Jesus so that we might be in right relationship with the father that was broken at the fall, so that then we begin to be changed and we can have healthy relationships again. Yes, they will be imperfect. Yes, they will be in part. But then the Bible tells us that in the end, in glorification, whenever we see Jesus face to face, that all of our relationships will be mended and made right. So... What I want to do this morning is, if our relationships, if I'm right, and if our relationships can, A, bring us the most joy, or B, bring us the most heartache, wouldn't it be wise for us to lean in and hear what Paul has to say about them? Wouldn't it be wise to lean in and say, what's Paul actually getting at here implicitly as he talks about his relationship to Timothy, Epaphroditus, the Philippians, how they all interact? And maybe most importantly, I'd like to pray for us, and I want to pray that the Holy Spirit will begin to maybe uncover some of those relationships that are in your life that maybe you're trying to compartmentalize and God's trying to bring you to bring healing there. Maybe it's it's even in your marriage and you've recognized in your own marital relationship, there's this distance that's beginning to grow and maybe you become glorified roommates. And so the Lord wants to bring the fullness of joy that should come from that marital covenant. Maybe it's somebody that you are Uh, had a relationship with it was very strong and it was mutually beneficial and encouraging and now it's just kind of grown distant and you've just kind of wrote it off as well we're just in different life stages but actually the lord wants to bring you to why that happened and how he can redeem that but either way what i pray is that the holy spirit will take what is what is generally his truth the truth of his word and he would apply it particularly to each and every one of us amen that we could experience the joy that really god has to offer so if you'll bow your heads with me, I want to pray to that end, and then I'll just jump in. Father, I'm, I'm humbled. The truth is, Lord, each and every one of us, we have these relationships in our lives, and we struggle, so we lay them at your feet. Uh, the ones that are great, we thank you for them. The ones that we feel are broken and marred beyond repair, we lay them before you. And we ask, Lord, would you help us? Help us not just apply the truth of your word, to those relationships, but to experience the truth of your word and how you have offered to us relationship with you. Holy Spirit, we pray that we could, we could experience what it's like to walk with you and to trust you and to, to really hear the words of Jesus when he calls himself our friend and what that means. Let us experience that, God. Help us to experience it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's start in Philippians chapter number two. uh, And I'll just kind of kick it off with verse 18. Actually, verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Point number one is that healthy relationships are selfless and caring relationships. Healthy relationships are selfless and caring relationships. That's what Paul starts with. So let's talk a little bit about that. Let's start with caring. Paul says this about Timothy. First, he says... I I really want to hear news from what's going on. Now, Paul's in prison, right? But he's longing to hear about the Philippians. This is not new stuff. Paul's been saying this the whole book. He loves this, this group of people. He loves them so much that he's writing them a letter as he's going through one of the hardest times of his life. So we don't need to belabor the point. But he goes on to say, and then there's Timothy. And Timothy really loves you. And Timothy, quote, has, there's no one like him that has a genuine concern for your welfare. That's what care looks like. Now, Paul has to know this about Timothy for a reason. I think it's important to note that of all the things that Paul does in this letter, he gives us a great example of a particular Christian virtue, which is this: that we should be speaking well of each other consistently. You ever notice that from Paul? That even when Paul has to rebuke someone, he does it quickly, he does it swiftly, and he doesn't personalize it. But but for the majority of Paul's letters, what he does is he speaks very well of the people in the church. Timothy, Epaphroditus, Silas, Titus, all these people that he'll bring up. He speaks well of them. He speaks up of them. Paul even goes on to say that he's anxious about the well-being of the Philippians and his anxiety is rooted in uh, his care and love for them. And so what does he do? He sends Timothy. And I love that he sends Timothy. He doesn't just send anyone, but he says, but Timothy is a guy who cares for your welfare. He's a guy everyone else might care mostly about themselves, but not Timothy. Timothy cares about your well-being. As the church uh, at Providence, we we talk often about this. We we even make it a point in our home groups, we do things like meal trains, we do things like uh, hospital visits, we do things like making sure that we care for each other's physical needs, emotional needs, spiritual needs. In our home groups, it's this uh, life-giving, kind of life-on-life, relational care that we have for each other. And the reason for that is because of this text, because this is who the church of God is called to be. We're called to care about each other, to have genuine concern for the welfare of another. It's kind of a familial feeling that when you get, into, you get involved in the family of God that you start feeling like, even though I'm not your blood brother or blood sister, I feel this sense of camaraderie with you that I'm concerned. Your well-being is as, is as much important to me as my own well your children's well-being is as important to me as my children's well-being. And I can go on, right? The health of your marriage is as important to me as the health of my marriage. This, this care that you have, this uh, Romans 12, weeping with those who weep, uh, rejoicing and laughing with those who are rejoicing and laughing, this kind of empathy that we share with each other. Care like this mirrors Christ because Christ lived his life caring for the physical, spiritual, and emotional needs of those around him as he walked around, right? When, they were, when people were sick, Jesus was, the scripture said often he was moved with compassion on the crowds because of their sickness. But not just their physical sickness, it says that he was moved with compassion because the crowds were like sheep without a shepherd. They had emotional, spiritual psychological needs. They were basically chasing all these bubbles that would burst in their lives. And it said he was moved by that. He cared about them. He wanted them to know God. And this is how we're meant to care for each other. But this kind of care is rooted in selflessness. And Paul takes a note out of his own book right here, right? Here's what Paul says. In, in, in early in chapter number two, Paul said that we should not only look to our own interest, but to the interest of others. And so now he says, Timothy is that guy. You notice that? He says, you shouldn't just look to your own interest, but look to the interest of others. And then he says, Timothy's a guy who doesn't look to his own interest, but he looks to the interest of others. And everybody else wouldn't look to the interest of Jesus Christ, but Timothy looks at you with the eyes of Christ. That's, wow, what a compliment. What a compliment from Paul. That his his fellow worker, Timothy, when he saw the Philippians, he didn't see them through his own eyes. He saw them as Christ would see them. Unhealthy relationships are self-centered relationships. In premarital, we always talk about if you, have a, if you have a servant married to a selfish person, you have abuse. If you have a servant married to a servant, you have a Christian marriage. And if you have a selfish person married to a selfish person, you have a train wreck. Right? Because in the end, they're always going to look out for numero uno when the Bible says that two are supposed to become numero uno. Right? And so they're always kind of, they are leveraging in their conversations, they're trying to make sure they protect their rights, they protect themselves, and in the end, that is not what a healthy relationship looks like. Unhealthy relationships is when we filter everything someone says or does through the lens of how it hurts us or helps us. We, We filter it all through, are they affirming me or are they denying me? Are they encouraging me or are they discouraging me? And notice that the common denominator there is me, 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 me in relationship. But Paul calls us to put on a different lens. He says, look at others through the eyes of Christ, like Timothy. See them as Jesus would see them. Now, you might be asking court, do, I don't even know exactly what that might look like. Well, let me tell you this. Um, here's a great litmus test. When I said that healthy relationships are caring relationships, and then I began to go through bullet points of what that looked like, was your immediate reaction, huh, no one cares for me like that. Did you think that? When I said, yeah, meal trains and this and that, we're like, no, I did a meal train for me. I was sick last week. (laughs) None of you even know that I'm pregnant, you know? Like, nobody asks, that's why. I'm not offering that information, whatever it may be. Is that how you heard that? When someone says, healthy relationships are caring, you start listing off all the people, uncaring, 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 uncaring in my life. That's probably because most of your relationships are selfish. A selfless person when I say healthy relationships are caring, they start thinking, oh, who should I? Who has God put in my life that I might be caring for more deeply? That perhaps I'm missing the mark here and I should, I should have answered that call when it was me time. See, that's how selfless relationships work. They're considerate. And I wanna make this note. I love that Paul is not under the assumption that he can care for everybody. Like he's in prison right now, he's not gonna be able to start making hospital visits. And I love that Paul doesn't lament that like he's the Messiah. Instead, what does Paul do? He sends Timothy. He says, Timothy, you got to go, man. I'm chained up. Can't do it. He doesn't say, sorry, I can't do it. So your needs are unnecessary, Philippian church. He says, your needs are very necessary. So I'm going to send someone who's genuinely concerned for your welfare, but it can't be me. And he's okay with that. What does that teach us? Well, we're not Messiahs. You're not gonna be able to care and meet everybody's needs, nor should you be. In fact, you shouldn't repent for the fact that you can't meet everybody's needs. You should repent for the fact that you thought you could. You should repent for the fact that you thought you were going to be the omnipotent, omniscient one. There's only one that gets to hold that card, and his name is Jesus. But what we can be tangible expressions of God's love to each other, and we can meet the needs of others, If we're humble enough to acknowledge when it's not meant to be me, maybe it's meant to be this person. I can't be there. I can't do that. We can actually acknowledge that. What else does Paul say? Well, he goes on. In verse 22, he says this. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Point number two, healthy relationships are trusting and communal. Healthy relationships are trusting and communal. Paul uses the analogy of father and son here. And I think that because he does that, it's easy for us to kind of write that off as a unique relationship. And I want to say, listen, the relationship Paul and Timothy had, it was unique, okay? I don't want to to act like it wasn't. It was. But... I really think that Paul's giving us some insight here to a deeper truth that we can apply to our own relationships. What does he say about Timothy after he says, he served with me like a father to a son? He uses these two words. He is trustworthy and dependable. Trustworthy and dependable. I think there's two application points for those words. Number one, healthy relationships are always going to be built on the foundation of trust and dependability. Amen? Amen. If you're married, you know this, right? I don't, like, what I just said sounded like it was something that was out of a quote book, and it's just every one of us know it. It's just it totally assumed. When you stood up in front of your bride or in front of your groom, and you held hands, and you began to make vows to each other, implicit within those vows was trust. You were handing over, vulnerably handing over yourself to be hurt or to be valued, right? To be received or to be rejected, Guys, uh, every time you ask, uh, the, when you ask your spouse to marry you for the very first time, every time this happens in the history of the world, what are you really doing? And you know this because it's what makes you nervous. You're laying yourself out there. Because she could say, no. Or she, if you do it publicly, she, she could say, can we talk in private? Which means no. <laughs> just so you know, if she says that, just refuse. No, let's talk here. You know, try to push through. <laughs> You're being vulnerable. It doesn't have to be marital relationships. Your friendships, at the end of the day, implicit within them is a trust. When you lay before someone, uh, maybe a secret of yours, you tell them something about your life, about your hurts, about your pains. What are you doing? You're trusting them. You're trusting them. And Timothy here, Paul says, he is trustworthy and dependable. I think we live in a culture that is so frivolous and quick to make excuses, like this whole idea of my word is my bond, that's a complete joke in our culture now. Um, that, 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 that idea that if I say I'm going to do something, then I will do it. Um, in the name of grace and freedom, we often diminish the need for this kind of dependability. What do I mean by the, in the name of grace and freedom? Well, we say, well, I'm, not, I'm imperfect, so sorry. And so we just kind of pass off something like I told you I would do this and then I didn't do it. And how that mars the relationship. Um, specifically, maritally, here's what you need to hear. Uh, even if you think it's no big deal, it really doesn't matter what you think. It matters about the person who was offended and how, much, how big of a deal they thought it was. So if you say, hey, listen, I'm imperfect, sorry. Uh, no big deal. Well, no big deal to you. But what if it's a big deal to them? And they may even look at you and say, oh, okay, it's no big deal. But when they say that with their mouths, their heart could say a completely different thing. This is why bitterness can creep into relationships quickly. Whenever it was a big deal to you, but you pretend that it wasn't a big deal. And that trust that you laid out, that, that dependability that you were kind of hoping for, it got broken. First Peter 2 verse 16 says this, live as people who are free, but don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil, living, but live as servants of God. What does Peter say? He says, listen, grace is true and grace is real. But don't misapply the grace of God to your life so that you can do whatever you want to do and then say it's grace covers it. That's what he's saying. So don't, don't in the end say that it's not important for me to hold my word because, uh, you know, I'm an imperfect person and so I embrace my humanity, I embrace my identity as a, as a sinner, but I don't take my responsibility as a saint seriously. We do this in relationships often. You see, we're not given freedom from the tyranny of the law to do evil and then smear grace on it. We're given freedom to submit our whole selves to God and be restored. And I will say, one of the first outworkings of that is how we're restored relationally with each other. But that's part one of what this text, I think, is implying. There's a part two. When Paul says that Timothy is trustworthy and dependable, the part two to that is he's saying that it's an important ingredient in every relationship that we try to learn how to trust each other. Does this make sense? If Timothy's trustworthy, that means that Paul has already entrusted something to him, which means that Paul was taking a risk. Let me say it like this. Every healthy relationship is a risk because you're laying out something that's important to you and handing it to another, and they have the opportunity to do what they will with that, and that sometimes that can hurt. We need the overwhelming grace of God in the gospel to give us a reason to trust again. We have to learn to trust people with, and this is not to the exclusion of these things, but here's a few of them, our hurts, our losses, our doubts, our fears, our joy, and even our deepest needs. If we don't learn to trust people with those things, we will always have a malformed, malnourished understanding of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean in your home group, whenever you get together and you say, what are the prayer requests? It's a perfect example. Now, here's the thing. If it's a new home group, here's what I promise is going to happen. 17 prayers for your grandparents. Uh, three hopes for sick dogs to get well. Um, and then the last one, which is the most vulnerable of the night, just need help with my prayer life. Why is that the most common one? Well, here's why. Because if I polled the room and if I ask all of us, do you think you pray enough? Here's what I imagine you would say. 99% of us would say, no, I don't pray enough. No, I don't pray enough. And then there's that one guy that's like, hmm, I actually think I'm doing pretty good. And he isn't. <laughs> He's not. So if we, can, if we can grab onto something that is a universal issue, a universal struggle and make that our struggle, then it, it's really not vulnerability. It's whenever in your home groups you start having those moments that are actually about the depths of your heart. And when it starts coming from those people who who typically they don't offer that kind of information. It's because that's an element of trust. And I will tell you, as trust gets broken early on in life, it becomes much more difficult to trust again. This is why, apart from a work of the Spirit of God, by the grace of God, applying the gospel particularly to those pieces of brokenness in our heart, it's impossible for us to walk in this. It really is. We are averse to trust. And we're averse to trust for a reason. Well, the reason is because our first parents, they mistrusted God. And so we have mistrusted each other ever since. And we've mistrusted God ever since. Mistrust runs deeper than even our relationship with God. At our core, human beings are so distrusting and skeptical that we don't even trust our own thoughts and feelings. We don't trust anything. You're mistrusting not just because of what Adam and Eve did, but because of what's happened in your life, the choices that were made for you when you were a child, the choices that were made around you that affected you, and then the choices that you made as an adult as well. And what God does is he wants to, he looks to meet us in that place of mistrust and give us a reason to trust again. What the cross is, is Jesus' way of meeting us in that place of broken mistrust and saying, you can trust me. Is there anything more vulnerable than the very position of the cross? Think about it. Jesus' arms spread out for us, and he's completely vulnerable. And this is the God of the universe, right? His humble submission is this cry from God to say, you can trust me because of what I'm willing to do for you. And God wants to meet us in that place. Now, you might be thinking, okay, Corey, that sounds good. Um, I need more proof. Well, I can go through the Bible, and I'll just start with a few. Um, Abraham and Sarah, where did God want to meet them? In their deep wound of infertility and their mistrust around having a child. Jacob, God meets him in his deep wounds of insecurity, inadequacy, and identity, his problems that he had about who he was. God meets him and wrestles with him and gives him a new name. With Joseph, God meets him in a deep wound of a rejection and abandonment. In the midst of being imprisoned, he meets him there. And I can go on through Moses and David and Ruth and all of these people in the scriptures, all the way to Jesus in all of his interactions. What's he doing? Nathaniel, I saw you under the fig tree. What does that mean? You ever thought about this story? Nathaniel, I saw you under the fig tree. And immediately Nathaniel believes. He was skeptical, and then he believed after Jesus said, I saw you under the fig tree. And the Bible says nothing about exactly what happened under the fig tree or why. Because whatever happened under the fig tree, Nathaniel knew. Only God would speak to me in that way. And you have those things. Every one of us have those things where if God were to say to you this, I know you here. And I want to meet you there so that you can learn to trust me. See, God longs to meet us in that place of deepest wound so that he can show us that he's trustworthy. This is what C.S. Lewis says in his book called The Four Loves about trust. He says this, there is no safe investment. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything in your heart will certainly be wrung and even possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. I love that. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken, but it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. What does he say here? Well, he says this. Condemnation is really a relational trajectory. We mistrust and reject vulnerability over and over and over and over again eventually to our own demise. That's what C.S. Lewis is saying because here's what he's teaching you, is your relationships, you might think it's really about the people sitting next to you, it's really here. Your rejection really starts here and continues here. Because if you will be willing to be vulnerable and trust the Lord, then you can open up to others. But it's not just, Paul doesn't just say that relationships are trusting, but that they are communal. Watch what he says here in verses 25 to 28. I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, your messenger and minister to my need. For he's been longing for you all. He's been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. What is Paul talking about here? Listen to these interconnected, dependent relationships. I'm just gonna kind of flow through them quickly for the sake of time. I wanted to send you Epaphroditus. He's my brother. Listen to these roles. My brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier in the gospel, but he's not only that. It's not the only roles he fills. He's also your messenger, but not just that. He's the minister to my need. Why is he the minister to Paul's need, not the Philippians' need? Well, because Paul says, Epaphroditus meeting your need is him actually meeting my need because I need to be there for you. I need to help you, and I can't, so Epaphroditus is doing it. He says, Epaphroditus is longing for you. He's distressed, why? Because you heard that he was sick, and he's he's internally struggling because he doesn't want you to be internally struggling. Paul says, I love Epaphroditus. I love him so much that it would be sorrow upon sorrow. Why does he say that, sorrow upon sorrow? Sorrow because I would mourn his death, and sorrow because I know you would mourn his death. We would, I would lose a brother, you would lose a messenger and a friend. He says, so I'm going to be sending him to you. It's going to give you great joy. See, the best relationships are relationships that simultaneously express their dependence on one another without proclaiming ownership over one another. What do I mean by that? You acknowledging that you actually do need people is essential to a healthy relationship versus saying, I don't really need you. What you're really saying is, I don't really trust you, right? So when you're actually able to say, I do need, I do depend upon your gifts, your care, your personality, what you offer, then you can actually experience what they have to give and they can reciprocate. But wait, but we're not talking about codependency where you say, I need you and no one else can have you. You know what I'm talking about? Paul says, I love Epaphroditus. I need my brother. He meets my needs, but he doesn't say, and you can't have him. He's all mine. He says, I'm sending him to you because you need him too. And he needs to be cheered by you. And we need each other because we're the body of Christ. And this is how it works. Now, I have a star beside this because I need to say this. Uh, this is one particular point that doesn't apply uh, apples to apples with marriage. <laughs> you can imagine why. There, We're not talking about sharing in that relationship, are we? Maybe in some ways, like my wife has gifts and she blesses the body of Christ and therefore I wanna encourage her to be able to use those gifts, but there's a uniqueness to our relationships that's just for me and her, and that's right. Now, listen, C.S. Lewis, this is the second half of his quote about these relationships. Here's what he says. He says, above all, eros, which is the love that you have in marriage, while it lasts, is necessarily between two people only. But two, far from being the necessary number for friendship, meaning other relationships, is not even the best number. He said, having, one, having best buddies is not even the best way to do it, he says. The reason for this is important. In each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights other than my own to show all his facets. Hence, true friendship is the least jealous of all the loves. Two friends delight to be joined by a third and three by a fourth. If only the newcomer is qualified to be a real friend. I love that he says qualified. What does he mean? Trustworthy. He says, if only that newcomer is gonna be a man that I can trust with myself or a woman I can trust with myself, then it's the more the merrier. He says, then they can say, as the blessed souls in Dante say, here comes one who will augment our loves, for in this love to divide is not to take away. What's he talking about? That when you add other people into these kind of relationships and friendships, what it offers to you is One brother or one sister is able to make this person laugh in a way that you can't. And you would have never heard her laugh like that if it weren't for this person being welcomed in. And so not only is her joy increased, but yours is too. Lewis goes on in his book to talk about his group of four friends and that when one of them died, it's like a a part of them all died. Not just because they lost their friend, but because of what he brought out in all of them. They lost that part of themselves. See, this is the body of Christ. This is why community is so important, that we should be welcoming people because when we welcome people into the body of Christ, we know in the end, not only are we getting to know them, which is great joy, but we're getting to know parts of each other we never knew before, before they were entering into the community. Last point is this. Paul says, healthy relationships are honoring relationships, So he says in verse 28, I'm the more eager to send him, therefore, so that you can rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete that which was lacking in your service to me. Paul says, I want you to honor Epaphroditus. Now, I love that Paul says that, but he's already modeled for us what it looks like to honor people, hasn't he? He's been doing it this whole time. He says, Timothy's a great man, trustworthy and dependable. No one will be concerned like Timothy is. Epaphroditus is a man willing to die for you. What a great man that he is. And then he says, now I want you to honor him when he comes. Epaphroditus almost died for these people. Relationships that look healthy, they look out for opportunities to honor the other party. And I wanna say particularly honor the other party in ways that we look like and mirror Jesus. See, it's an important thing that we don't honor each other only in relation to who we are, but who we are in Christ. Because who we are in Christ is the best part of us. It's who we were meant to be. It's our true wholeness. So if we only honor one another in in a myriad of other ways without saying, this is how you reflect Jesus, we're only really honoring those things that are subsequent and less than the whole self. You see, the things that we honor inevitably end up building a culture and environment parents, you know this with your kids, right? The things that you affirm are the things that end up becoming the culture of your home. And here's the the hard part with that is sometimes we're really good at affirming and then sometimes we affirm and we don't know we're doing it. (laughs) It's like whenever our child does something that's simultaneously like sinister and funny and we can't help but laugh. You ever had that moment or is it just me? Okay, I'll move on. (laughs) That's hard, isn't it? It's like they say something that they shouldn't say and you're like, I love it, but I shouldn't love it. You know, and you... You laugh. It's affirming. And so for them, it's like, ooh, this affirmation comes. So now you're starting to build that culture of who they are. This happens in the church as well, guys. What we affirm in each other or, oh, what's even harder, what we don't affirm in each other. When we see, if, if jealousy creeps in, we see someone being formed in the image and likeness of Jesus, and we purposefully withhold honoring them because we're jealous, and therefore they can't flourish, and neither do we. It's tough. In order to engage in honoring, you have to humble yourself, you have to care about others, you have to trust others, and you have to live in community with others. Now, in closing, what's Paul after here with this whole relationship talk? What's he after here in in kind of talking with them? Well, I think one is to inform them what's about to happen. I'm going to send Timothy, I'm going to send Epaphroditus, this is what they're going to do, but it's more than that. In Philippians chapter number four, in the very first section, he's gonna talk to these two sisters in the church that have been arguing, and it's one line, and many commentators say it's probably what the whole letter was written for. In chapter four, he just tells them, uh, Euodia and Syntyche, I think is her name, they need to agree in the Lord, that's all he says. Whoever these two women are, he's heard they're arguing. And a lot of people say he wrote this letter to say, figure it out. And if you go all the way back to chapter one, you start thinking through what's he talking about? Humility and, and, and joy in the midst of hardship and, and learning to count others' interests as more significant than yourselves and be like Jesus who emptied himself. And then he's talking about these relationships he's got with Timothy and Epaphroditus. And on and on he goes. It's not about your own righteousness, chapter number three. It's about pursuing the righteousness of Christ. Bam, bam, bam. And then in chapter four, with one line, he says, listen, girls, figure it out. And then he moves on. <laughs> it's crazy, right? I think Paul, Paul's getting at something that's important, apparently these two two, uh, not seeing eye to eye actually was affecting the whole body. That our relational struggles, our relational pride, our unwillingness to actually humble ourselves in our marriages can and will affect the people around you. And we do and we should carry one another's burdens, but we shouldn't be about the business of affirming pride in relationships to the extent that it harms other people. So you might be thinking, well, what does that that mean? Well, what I mean is, if your marital relationship is, there's such a pride level that you can't humble yourself, and now because of your marriage, it's now infecting the whole home group because all it's talking about is who's right and who's wrong, maybe you need a good Paul, agree in the Lord. Figure this out. Somebody's not humbling themselves or both. But I think way deeper than all of it is Paul's encouragement here that every healthy relationship starts with a healthy relationship with God. You see, we struggle with joy in relationships because we struggle to have a healthy relationship with God himself. We struggle to care for others, be selfless towards others, be trusting of others, be communal with others, to honor others because of our damaged and fractured relationship with God. Deep down, we don't believe that God cares for us or at least not like we want to be cared for or think that we deserve to be cared for. We don't believe he is selflessly serving us. We don't believe we can trust him. We don't believe that he can care for us with all of his heart and still love our neighbor. We don't believe that he holds us in honor or how could he because we know ourselves and we're not honorable. This morning, I wanna encourage you, it does not have to be this way. Christ is the greatest friend that you could ever have. Epaphroditus, Paul says, he deserves honor because he almost died for you. Friends, I want to tell you about someone who didn't almost die for you. He did. His name is Jesus. He didn't go to the finish line and said, whew, he was close. I almost laid my life down for you. He went the entire way and died for you. Let me ask you this question this morning. No matter where you stand, is there anyone more caring than Jesus? Is there anyone more selfless than Jesus? Is there anyone more trustworthy than Jesus? Is there anyone more dependable than Jesus? Anyone who shows the capacity to care equally and uniquely for all of his disciples without diminishing their value or showing partiality. Anybody like Jesus? Anyone who's proven worthy of honor and yet he's willing to honor sinners like you and me, like Jesus does? I don't see it. There's only one. There is healing for broken relationships in Jesus. There is healing for broken trust in Jesus, and there's healing for broken people in Jesus. And so, Christian, believer, as you approach the Lord's table this morning, let's come with celebration and let's come with repentance. Let's celebrate the Lord Jesus, that he has made a way for a right relationship with God the Father, and that we can come boldly. We don't have to be afraid of that. We don't have to be... We don't have to be fearful. We don't have to wonder about God's disposition towards us because we already know he loves us because of the cross. Let's celebrate that. But also, as we take the bread and we take the wine, let's repent. Let's repent of our mistrust that has hindered us, not amb- amb- like, amb- with ambiguity. I'm talking about the mistrust that hindered you this week, your mistrust with God. Let's repent of it. Say, God, you've given me no reason to mistrust you, and I did, and I do. Help me. If you're not a believer in the room, rather than taking the bread and the wine this morning, here's what I want to ask you. Would you consider consider the friendship of Jesus this morning? It's extended to you today. He is a worthy Savior and a Savior that's willing to call himself your friend and the best friend that you can have. We'll have a prayer of belief on the screen behind me. If you've never trusted in Jesus, not just as a Savior, but as a friend, This is a guide for you. In no way do we think this prayer saves you. Jesus saves, amen? We'll also have some prayer volunteers on the side of the room, and here's what they're here for, for you to come and and to actually grab hands with someone, again, relationship, and say, pray with me about this. There's power in that. There's real power in in coming to someone and saying, I wanna confess this to you. I wanna tell you, I've been feeling this way and not holding that internally because there's, there's humility in that. There's humility in saying, I'm not just gonna hold this on my own, but I'm gonna tell you about it because I know I need the body of Christ. And then lastly, we're gonna come and we're gonna take of the Lord's table, and this is what it does for us. It reminds us all over again that of all of our fears, of all of our shame, of all of our guilt that keeps us mistrusting God, the cross stands as a reminder of why we should trust him all over again. Amen? If you'll stand to your feet, I wanna pray for us. Father, thank you that right now as I pray, your word says I get to come boldly and not cowering down. Thank you that you sent your son Jesus to do what I could never do for myself and what we could never do for ourselves so that now we can even consider ourselves to be sons and daughters. Jesus, thank you that you're so humble you call us friends. And Lord, we ask for your forgiveness that we are We struggle to be good friends to you. And so we ask for your forgiveness and we ask you teach us what it's like to be in a relationship. Holy Spirit, I I ask now, I pray particularly for broken marriages in this room. Would you heal? For tense marriages. Maybe they're not broken, but they're tense. Would you heal? Would you bring humility to spouses this morning if they wouldn't walk out of this room without looking at each other and saying, I am sorry, forgive me. I have been prideful, forgive me. I have been selfish, forgive me. I have been uncaring, forgive me. Lord, for friendships in this room, relationships in this room, where they look at each other and say, I struggle to trust you, and I'm sorry. I struggle to trust people. And then, Lord, for the relationships that aren't even in this room, but but there's people in our minds, there's names in our minds. Lord, I ask for the humility to lay those people's names at your feet and say, forgive us, Lord, and tell us what the next step is. We will obey. And finally, Lord, as we partake of your table, we do so with great joy and with great trembling. What an awesome God you are. That the gospel is true and that nothing can stand against it. We love you, Lord, and we sing to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may come and take it.